0: Please uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 9, the end of the chapter, beginning at verse 30 and reading through the first few verses of chapter 10. We're in a transitional place in this letter that Paul uh, addressed to these Roman Christians. And uh, honestly, as I was thinking about this this last week, I, I just love this letter. I just love this letter, and I love this passage. So I I, I will ask you to pray for me that I can make some sense of it for you this morning. (laughs) Because it's a marvelous passage. Let's read together at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And they have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us with this in these few minutes that we have by your Spirit. Open hearts, open ears, open eyes. Give us grace to receive what you would say and then to place the full weight of our trust in it for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You, uh, many of you, most of you, uh, you remember the 60s. Uh, some of you have read about the 60s because you weren't around for the 60s, but, uh, but most of you, a lot of you remember the decade of Vietnam and campus unrest and civil rights marches and and you remember all of that and and you may remember that through that decade from the early 60s and into the 70s there was the somewhat sudden appearance of long-haired bearded blue-jeaned denim-shirted refugees from the world of campus demonstrations and civil rights marches. Refugees. In our churches. In our churches. I remember those days because I was one of them. I was one of them one of those who experienced the bankruptcy of the counterculture, who found himself in the last place he ever expected to be, the church. And even beyond that, found himself in a most unlikely place, a small and very conservative Christian college in the Midwest, And who found himself there for one reason, because I wanted to learn as much as I could possibly learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you remember this. And it was awkward. It was awkward, wasn't it? It was awkward because because we were in your churches, we were in your buildings, we were in your pews, we were in your Sunday school rooms. It was awkward for you. But it was also awkward for us because because we kept hearing, what are they doing here? (laughs) Why doesn't he get his hair cut? Why doesn't he shave his beard? Why doesn't he put on some khakis at least? And that only begins, that experience, for those of you who can kind of envision this thing, only begins to skim the surface of what was transpiring in the first decades after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Gentiles, Gentiles began to associate with Jews in the same rooms and without dividing walls. And what there was, was was a clash of cultures and a dynamic of conflict. And it's a dynamic that is really, frankly, very, very hard for us to comprehend, for us to understand. And it all revolved around this, this influx of Gentiles connecting with Jews and, and Jews Wrestling with Gentiles and Gentiles not knowing what to do with Jews. It all revolved around this one very big, overarching, life defining, eternity determining question. How is a person, any person, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, how is any person Made right with God. How is any person made right with God? Or to use the word that the Apostle uses six times in this passage, six times in seven verses, how does a person attain the righteousness of God? How does a person attain The righteousness, the rightness of God. How does a person gain standing in the presence of God? How is a person accepted? How does a person attain the righteousness of God? And here is his answer. It's an answer he's been giving repeatedly through this letter. He gives it again and again and again because it is fundamental. It is foundational to the gospel. It is an issue that will not go away. It is an answer that cannot go away. You gain, you attain the righteousness of God standing in the presence of God by faith and not by law or law-keeping. By faith and not by law or law-keeping. Ever. In any case. At any point along the way. And the Gentiles, of all people, seem to be getting it. The Gentiles seem to be getting it. And that's the struggle that Paul has as he writes this letter. It's, it's to help both Jew and Gentile alike understand why, of all people, Gentiles would seem to be getting it and would be flooding into the churches with all of their baggage all of their funny clothing, all of their funny practices, but the Jews who have been the keepers of the keys to the buildings aren't getting it. They're not getting it. That's the contrast here, isn't it? It's the contrast between Jew and Gentile. Verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have attained it, a righteousness that, is by, righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. The Gentiles are flooding in. The Jews seem to be being cut out and removed. The Gentiles who are hearing the gospel and responding to it Listen to these words. I'm stringing together some words here that make up the sort of coat of many colors that the Gospel is. The Gentiles are flooding in, hearing the Gospel, the good news of forgiveness, of cleansing, of renewal, of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fortieth chances. The promise of eternal life. The promise of a kingdom where a king serves the people. Where the king lays aside his power, his prerogative, his influence, and comes as a servant, even to lay down his life for his people. Completely unlike the kings that the citizens of the Roman Empire would be familiar with. Kings who exploited, we've said this over and over again, kings who exploited their subjects, who indulged themselves, who punished those who opposed them. Folks, the Gentiles are exhausted by that. And they hear about another kingdom, and they hear about another way of doing things, and they flood into the churches. But the Jews, Israel by and large, are rejecting this gospel. And why is that? Purely and simply, it seems they do not understand this idea of faith. They do not understand that all of the blessings of righteousness, all of the blessings of right standing before God are received by faith as a gift apart from law. Three things. The necessity of faith, the nature of faith, the object of faith. I realize we have a congregational meeting after this service of worship. So I'll do the best I can. (laughs) Three things to consider. First, the necessity of faith. What are we saying here? Well, we're saying a thing which in all probability, in all likelihood, we would assent to in theory but which in practice, moment-to-moment, day-to-day practice, we lose sight of. And it is this, what I've just said. Gaining acceptance with God cannot be by law. That is, it cannot be by obedience to laws and regulations because we fail to keep the law. We fail to keep the law. And so acceptance with God and all of the blessings of acceptance with God must of necessity be by faith because we are disqualified from attaining those blessings by observing the law. Verses 31 and 32. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith as if it were based on works. Israel sought to gain this standing, this righteousness of God, through works, through obedience to the law. Now, it's interesting in this passage... Never saw this before until this last week, reflecting and ruminating on this passage. It's interesting that Paul calls it a law and not the law. Do you see that in verse 31? Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. That's a very significant thing. A law, not the law. What is Paul alluding to? Let me suggest to you what I think he's alluding to. That the Jews of Israel had the same propensity that you and I have. The same inclination, the same propensity to construct a law, a law of my own making. A set of behaviors or beliefs or practices that I construct and adhere to in order to be found righteous according to that law which I've constructed. Here's an example. By the time of Jesus, the fourth commandment to honor the Sabbath day had become well over 600 rules. Rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And so restrictive and confining were the rules that Jesus was condemned for working when He healed a man on the Sabbath, a man with a withered arm. See, the rules were so confining and constricting that it was no longer about honoring the Sabbath and the beauty of the Sabbath and everything that the Sabbath represents. And what the Sabbath represents, by the way, is shalom, the fullness of the blessing of God on the totality of everything that He has made so that... The Sabbath pulsates with life and Jesus on the Sabbath violating the ordinances of the scribes and the Pharisees did do what was in keeping with the nature of the Sabbath and that is to bring shalom. Bring wholeness to what is broken. Just one example. These 600... Plus, requirements related to Sabbath-keeping became a law which one must keep in order to find favor with God and also in order to find acceptance within the community. It's not just a vertical thing. It's a horizontal thing. It works in both directions at every level. Hence, you exhausted... Exhausted by the bankruptcy of the counterculture, it's OK for you to come to this very conservative, Bible-believing college in the Midwest. Just get your hair cut first. Just get your hair cut first. Just just buy the khakis. Because, you see, we have donors who walk the grounds of this campus. And if they see you, they may not give. Look, I get how important it is to be discreet. I didn't get it when I was a brand-new convert, when I was a brand-new Christian. But I've learned. But learning takes time, doesn't it? So is the deal here that I have to learn all 600 plus of these regulations in order to be admitted into the group, that that's the means by which I gain access to this horizontal thing? That's the means by which I gain access to this vertical thing, all of the blessings of righteousness that flow? God forbid! God forbid. Now be careful here. Be careful here. And this warrants a sermon all on its own. Be careful here. Because all kinds of things, all kinds of things, can be codes of righteousness, can become laws or legalisms. Being reformed, can become a legalism. Being a homeschooler, with all due respect to the homeschoolers among us, can become a legalism. Who you read, who you quote, who you look to for guidance can become a legalism. I am of Paul. I am of Peter. I am of Ferguson. I am of Lewis. I am of Keller. I'm of this institution or that ministry. Very, very subtly do we elect, erect laws. And we erect those laws, I believe, at bottom for one simple reason. So that we can feel secure inside. So that we can feel secure inside, my friends. That is what Paul and Jesus before him wish to obliterate. We find Jesus coming along who finds himself in the presence of a howling crowd of men. Screaming for the head of a woman taken in adultery. How does Jesus address the men? He writes cartoons in the sand. Don't you you ever wonder? I wonder what he drew. John 8, it's there. I wonder what he drew. What was the picture he drew? He bends over, he writes in the sand, and he says to the crowd, howling, For the head of this woman, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And one by one, these lawless law erectors disappear. Folks, The law, please understand this. Paul says this in Romans 7, the law is righteous and good. But do you know what the law does? Do you know what any code of righteousness does? Do you know what these self-erected codes do at the end of the day? They expose you. They expose you and me. They kill us. They destroy us. They murder us. Don't smoke. Don't chew. Don't go with girls who do. It can be short, succinct. But you see, the law always has this power to penetrate, to get deep into our souls, try as we might to avoid it, And expose the truth about us. Now let me ask you something. And I'll tell you as I ask you this question. I am mindful. I am mindful of the Puritan preachers. Particular Richard Baxter. Who would say I preach as a dying man to dying men. Let me ask you. Were you to stand before the God of infinite righteousness, brilliant, brilliant and pure in white-hot holiness, were you to stand in His presence before whose gaze the mountains crumble, the earth trembles, would you really say, look at me, look at my record"? Look at my faith. Look at what I've done. And could you really hear that God say, all right, let's take a look. Let's see what you've done. Let's have a peek at what you've done that you ought not to have done. And and just for the fun of it, let's go the step beyond. And let's see what you ought to have done, but which you have not done. Do you really want to argue that you have loved me with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength? And do you really want to suggest that you have loved your neighbor as yourself, including those of a different ethnicity, including those of a different race, including even your enemy? I'll tell you what, I'll give you a second to reconsider. Just take a moment and reconsider. My friends, law will fail you. The law does not fail. You fail the law, and because you fail the law, you fail. I fail. Every one of us fails. Paul understood that. Read Romans 7. I wish I had time to read it. The law is holy and righteous and good, but the law, it was the law. Not even something that he erected for himself, but but the law, the law exposed the covetousness in his heart. The destitution of his own heart. The ugliness that was really there. The bigotries, the arrogance, the racisms, the self righteousnesses. The law exposed it all. Why is the first point the necessity of faith? Because there is simply no other means by which we may gain acceptance with God. No, not any. Ever. And please understand this. This is a point of practical application. I've wrestled with this for 40 years as a Christian. I think it's beginning to come into focus for me. It is not the case that faith gets you started and you take over with your rules and your regulations and your theologies and your authors. It is, as Paul says in Romans 1, faith from beginning to end starts. To finish, the totality of the limitless blessings which Christ has secured, which are the righteousness of God, flow to me today, tomorrow, and forever by faith. So what is faith? What is faith? Number two, what is faith? Oh, gee, this is terrible. Here's what it is, purely and simply. Faith is trust. Faith is trust. Very quickly, when the Reformers in the 16th century, and even before, going back to Augustine in the 4th century, and into the 5th century, wrestled with this idea of faith, they had the benefit of being able to work with Latin. Now, I'm not showing off here, okay? But they had the benefit of working with Latin, and as they thought about faith and what it was that constituted faith, what it was that comprised faith, they found three Latin words that help to understand what faith is: notitia, assensus, and fiducia. Three different words that actually come over into our language. They come into our vocabulary, and they come into our vocabulary in various forms. But here are three three words that have come into our vocabulary from those words: notice, assent, and fiduciary. Notice, assent and fiduciary and they reflect these aspects of faith that the reformers talked about as they sought to understand what it means to believe and the first notitia has to do with the content of faith the second assensus has to do with assenting to the content of faith and the third has to do with entrusting yourself to the content or substance of the faith Illustration, which I've used before, but it goes back three and a half years, so it will sound new. When we first came into this building, I started preaching through this letter to the Romans and talked about faith in those early weeks in this beautiful building with these beautiful chairs. And I said, every one of you came in here this morning and you sat on these chairs without thinking about it. If I'd stopped you and asked you if the chairs were there, you would have said yes. You would have noticed that they were there. If I'd asked you the question, do you think that if you sit on the chair, it will hold you up? You most certainly would have said yes, although the cautious ones among you might have gotten down on your hands and knees and might have looked underneath to make sure that all the screws were in place and everything was properly assembled. New building, not everything works exactly the way it should. But the third thing, the third thing, what is the chair made for? It's made for you to sit in. And you exercise biblical faith, not when you assent to the fact that it's there, that it has strength to hold you up. Not when you just notice that it's there without considering it. You exercise biblical faith when you acknowledge that it's there, you assent to its properties, and you entrust yourself to it. You sit in it. You put the full measure of your weight upon it. What is faith? It's trust, my friends. It's trust. And every one of us here this morning is trusting one of two things. You're either trusting yourself or you've abandoned all hope and you've entrusted yourself to Christ. And here's what I believe. That every one of us here, whether you've done that before, done it for the first time just yesterday, Every one of us here is going to get up tomorrow morning confronted with the same choice. I have a friend who says the gospel is the gospel for the lost and the found. Because every morning, every morning, I'm challenged with this question, what am I trusting today? What am I trusting right now? Am I entrusting myself to myself or have I abandoned all hope in myself? Who I am, what I possess, what people think of me, what I own. Have I abandoned all of that for, as a friend put it to me recently, quoting Jesus, have I abandoned it all for the pearl of great price? That's biblical faith to entrust myself to the one who cannot fail. Some of you have had an experience with a chair in the years of your life, which was an unpleasant experience. You thought it would hold you up, and it didn't. It broke, and you went crashing to the floor. I guarantee you, the next time you went to sit in a chair, you examined that chair a bit more closely. The point Your faith is only as good as its object. Your faith is only as good as its object. My faith is only as good as its object. Here's the stunning thing about this passage that again warrants a sermon all its own. Paul tells us in this passage That the object of true faith has been there all along. The reliable object, the true object, the object that he says will not disappoint. When trusting, you will never be put to shame. The Apostle Paul says that the object of faith is buried in the Scriptures of the Old Testament to be found and unearthed and to be trusted even on the other side of the cross. It's verse 33. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And verse 4, Christ is the end, meaning the goal, the fruition, the fulfillment of the law. Folks, it's always been about Christ. On the other side of the cross, in prophetic terms, in prophetic language, in pictures and types and images, but always there. Think about the law. You say, how is Christ buried in the law? Christ is all over the place in the law. Think about the whole sacrificial system. Is it just keeping the particulars of the sacrificial system that is the point? Heavens, no. All of the particulars of the sacrificial system point in the direction of the perfect sacrifice. All of the particulars related to the Aaronic priesthood point beyond Aaron to the fulfillment of the Aaronic priesthood who is Christ. All of the particular laws pertaining to a king pertain not to that king, not to David, not to Solomon, not to Hezekiah, the best of the kings. But they point beyond themselves to the greater king, King Jesus. All of the law pertaining to the temple for heaven's sake point not to an earthly temple, but to the fulfillment of everything that is typified in that temple to Jesus himself who calls himself the temple. It's always Christ. Christ is the goal. Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is the one about whom and in whom the law is. And here is what the Jews did. And it's what we tend to do, and God help us and keep us from doing it. They lifted laws out of the law and sought to find acceptance with God by their law keeping, and they missed that to which the law in its entirety pointed. They missed Christ, they missed the forest for the trees. He is the rock. He is the fortress. He is the refuge. He is the one who is the sure, secure, and safe object for our believing. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I started reading a book this last week by a fellow named Alan Verhey i tell you, those Dutch, they're just, they're just sort of everywhere. And the title of the book is this, The Christian Art of Dying. Go to your local Christian bookstore. I won't say it. Go to your local Christian bookstore. Survey book listings. For practical Christianity, there is a flood of stuff out there, both good and bad, about how to live the Christian life. Nobody is paying attention to how to die well. But my friends, every one of us here, every one of us here will come to that day. And do I really want to come to that day? trusting my own record and law-keeping. There is a promise in this passage. It is big. And it is a promise that pertains to forever. Whoever entrusts himself to Jesus will not be put to shame. If you've not walked through that door, as Paul did, as he wrote the Corinthians, I beg of you, I plead with you to consider these things. Consider Jesus, that he stands before you, having fulfilled the law, having died for people like you and me. So that access, free, free access would be granted to all who would come and believe and entrust themselves to Him. You come with your stuff. Let's have coffee. I came with my stuff. And trust me, I've still got it. Don't let your stuff get in the way. Don't let your pride, for heaven's sake, get in the way. Jesus stands before you and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus. Thank You that You are there. Thank You that You have always been there. Thank You that You have always been pleased to extend this invitation to anyone who would hear and who would come to abandon all of this other foolishness and entrust ourselves to You. Thank You that You are a great Savior, and I pray, I pray that You would minister deeply to the hearts of each person here, each person, and do in each of our lives what is needful, that we might praise you and marvel at your grace. We ask in your name. Amen.